0: Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who've forged their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and or get a little bit happier. In this episode of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I'm talking to the brilliant Joe Fairley, a serial entrepreneur as you're about to discover, who has set up many businesses and hopefully will give us her advice on how to start in business, how to be successful and much more. Hello, Joe, Tell us to start. How did you start in business?
1: Gosh, I never expected to be in business. I never expected to do anything with my life. I left school when I was 16, I have six O levels, I went to secretarial college, and I, back in the day, thought that that was a stepping stone to perhaps working for a captain of industry and traveling the world. I never expected that I would be the boss. Um, But I had a series of secretarial jobs which ended up with me working on a magazine. And I blossomed on that magazine, partly because it was the happiest place I'd ever worked. So it's completely relevant to your podcast. Um, I was a journalist then for the next, well I'm still a journalist actually, but I was a magazine journalist full time for the next decade. and. I was also a magazine editor from the age of 23 and what I didn't quite realise when I was editing a magazine is that actually you're running a business. It was sort of under the radar as far as I was concerned, but you've got a budget, and you've got a team of 27 people, you have deadlines and and HR issues and, and all of the things that you have running a business. But I didn't really realise that that's what I was doing. I just thought I was having a really great time.
0: And what made it a great time? Why were you so happy then?
1: So these bosses that I had at something called Carlton Publishing, two men, Terry Hornet and Roger Pinney, and they really taught me about creating a great place that made people want to leap, leap out of bed in the morning and go to work. So we had amazing creative freedom as journalists and as An editor ultimately we actually weren't bothered by budgets and things they were very much of the opinion that if you create a great product if you build it they will come so it wasn't about shaving costs and and you know keeping you under the cost budget wise it was like spend the money create a great product and people will buy the magazine and they would also Regularly celebrate the successes and the anniversaries of our magazines. There was a stable of Look Now magazine, a younger teenage magazine called OK, uh, Woman's World, which was where I started before I went to edit Look Now, and ultimately Options, which was bought later by IPC. And so on your magazine's birthday, the year, the anniversary of the first date that it was ever published you would come into the office and you might have a waterford crystal glass on your desk as a gift or you might have a large bunch of flowers and everybody in the organisation got one um, and on the first day of spring you'd get in and there would be a jam jar with a, with a uh, bunch of daffodils in it and regularly once a year we would have a kind of shindig where they would do something like hire a bus and take us all to sound our races for the day and honestly every single person worked there still looks back and talks about the glory days of our career and how much fun we had and we're still of course all friends because we were so incredibly bonded by that joyous experience.
0: And you were 23? I was 23 when I was made the editor. I mean that's yes pretty young.
1: It was very young. I mean if somebody
0: today at 23 was made an editor I think I sometimes look at
1: 23-year-olds and I realise how incredibly young I was. So what sort of
0: boss were you, Jo? How would you describe yourself? Well,
1: I was, I think, again, trying to inspire people. Um, Funnily enough, I had a major battle for the first six months with my fashion editor, kind of Mexican standoff. I managed to get most of the team on side because you know they, they, wanted, they liked what I was going to do to the magazine. It needed to shake up, and I was there to shake it up. And um, I, But the, Mex, the Mexican standoff with the fashion editor went on for quite some time with us. Literally, my office was on the top floor, hers was on the bottom, and we would shout at each other up and down the stairs, she's now one of my best friends. After six months, we kind of woke up, and all of that was behind us, and we, were, we just loved each other. So um, that was quite an interesting experience my first day in the job i lost my voice and for the first week of being this boss i had using a sharpie to write the instructions on a sheet of paper
0: to so people. they were short
1: yes <laughs> um but it was again i'd had it instilled in me that it should be fun and it really was amazing fun and and, and people responded to that
0: and was there anything in your your childhood, your time at school, that you now look back on and you think, you, you know what, I probably was a bit bossy, a bit entrepreneurial. I did take the lead. Or, or was it completely sort of out of the blue that you find yourself in this position at it 23? It was completely
1: out of the blue, except that I do like to say that I think I get my leadership skills from being the eldest child. And I did have a Mob of three younger brothers who I managed to kind of platoon into doing the things that I wanted and make them join clubs that I founded and give me their pocket money and just generally there was the famously the happy club where if you were caught not smiling you got fined. <laughs> Still makes me hysterical to think about it. Um, so I think that being the eldest in the birth order probably made me able to lead a team but I honestly there was nothing else at school I mean I I was I was so bored at school so disengaged and I never you know I don't think I ever got any badge for anything ever Um, so there were no leadership roles
0: at school but you must must have been self-confident
1: I don't know if i was terribly self-confident i felt very very different to the people there i've always been a creative person and i went to a very very academic school where i could just about scrape through my exams with doing the absolute minimum of work and i'm not convinced that in 12 years at that school i ever knowingly handed in a piece of homework but i just didn't feel i fitted and the focus was on getting exam results and getting you ready to send you to Oxford and Cambridge and I wanted I was interested in art I was interested in geography because it equated to travel I loved English I loved French I did really well in those subjects and and had teachers who kind of you know built me up whereas for everything else I just got squashed and i thrown out of science for dissolving my 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 science uh, overall in a bowl of sulfuric acid and I got thrown out of history for answering a dare to sit on a stationary cupboard in the corner for two hours um, so that the teacher found it completely impossible to control the room of students and couldn't work out why they were laughing so much but I was actually up there on the stationary cupboard and it wasn't till she left the room so I was kind of I was quite naughty and subversive I think um, and
0: You were a character.
1: I was a character, but not necessarily one that they wanted to um, nurture more to quash.
0: Mm. So it's remarkable that you found such a happy home.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And, uh, you know, I suppose that I did have a happy home Mm. and that really helped. And My brothers and I were very close and still, you know, still are. Um, But it was the minute I left school that I felt I could cartwheel down the street and that my life was about to begin.
0: And then take us from that role, your first management role, editing a magazine at the age of 23, to launching Green and Black's famous chocolate. So take us through that journey.
1: I think it's important to mention the second editorial role, which was for a much, much bigger publishing company, IPC Magazines, on the South Bank in a 30-storey building against which I then banged my head for the next three years and found out that actually it wasn't editing a magazine that was fun. It was editing a magazine that that particular company that was fun. And I then was headhunted to be editor of Honey, which was a fashion magazine. Very prestigious job again, um, and... I suddenly discovered that instead of being in this most senior creative role I was a junior rung of management and actually I was really a pretty lowly rung of management who wasn't particularly highly regarded by the the powers that be and so I hated the fact that there were meetings to discuss the meeting you were going to have and that it was literally all about the budget Uh, and at that time the unions were extremely active uh, within IPC, and you couldn't even change your own light bulb without um, the, the maintenance staff downing tools and leaving the building. So it was a very miserable place to work. And I literally, uh, it, it was a bit like being back at school, frankly.
0: So it sapped your energy? It sapped
1: my energy. I mean, I still look back at the issues that we created and. It was, uh, we, we did some great work, but I inherited a really weird scenario where the previous editor had been fired and my mandate was to turn this magazine back into a fashion magazine. It had become a bit of a feminist publication in the style of Spare Rib, which with a name like Honey wasn't necessarily terribly logical. So my mandate was to turn it back into what it ought to be, fashion, beauty, you know, music, news, interesting people. Um, However, the previous editor was a very charismatic woman and the staff were extremely dedicated to her. And I spent the first six months with them having a um, lunch with her every Thursday where basically she was almost trying to to pull strings from far away. And uh, I inherited a secretary who any post that was addressed to the editor she forwarded to the previous editor rather than gave it to me. So it was
0: quite challenging. And so what was it in the end that made you think, I need to get out of this job? I was fired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so why were you fired? I was fired for a really good reason, which was that, um, well, I mean, it was something I'd predicted. L Magazine launched. And for the previous six months running up to that, I had been telling my bosses that this magazine was going to affect my circulation of my magazine and that we needed to do something to fight this off. The powers that be had got it into their head that it was not going to rival my magazine but rival a much uh, older title, Women's Journal, because in France that's what Marie Claire was like. It was a magazine for your mum. So they, I kept going upstairs and saying, but they've got Debbie Mason as their fashion editor. They've got Ian R. E&R Webb. They've got you know all of the people who were really the hottest fashion people in town in terms of editors and, and stylists, etc. And I was patted on the head and told that it wasn't going to affect my circulation. And they were putting three hundred thousand into a TV campaign for Women's Journal. And I, honestly, this was when I banged my head against that brick wall harder than ever before, because I knew it was going to affect my circulation. I knew Mm. it was targeting my publication, not Mm. Woman's Journal. And I felt I was slightly going mad, actually. Mm. And sure enough, the circulation, it came out, it sliced 30,000 off my circulation, and at my next budget meeting, my boss said to me, well, you know, your circulation's gone down, I'm gonna have to cut your budget. I'm like, I can't believe you're doing this. I spent you six months t- I spent six months telling you this was going to happen and now I'm being punished for it so basically he said well you know I've got to cut your budget and I said I can't do it for that and he said if you can't do it for that I'll have to find somebody who can and I said fine but I'm not resigning and he said would you like a year's salary to go away and I literally did do a cartwheel in there in the, in the, <laughs> the, on the, outside the lifts and scampered out of the building and just was so happy to be free. Mm-hmm. So it was a wonderful object lesson in how to create happy stuff versus how to create unhappy stuff, mm. and, and a really important lesson for me over the years.
0: So, not being listened to, not, not being feeling as freedom,
1: exactly, and, be and, and being made to feel it was all about money and profit. and and you know delivering that and and not that it was necessarily going to grow out of what you were creating
0: so you can't wheeling down the street with your salary down the in your back yeah, pocket absolutely what was the plan then
1: the plan was to become a freelance writer and i realized after three days i was entirely unemployable and i was never going to have a job again so that was that was a great discovery and then i met craig sam's my husband and That was the beginning of the the Green
0: and Black story. So, tell us about the story.
1: So... Iconic chocolate. Iconic
0: chocolate. Craig is a
1: uh, maverick and a one-off. I believe, Mark, you know Craig quite well. Um, He is a hippie entrepreneur who happens to have a degree from the Wharton Business School. And... Back when I first moved in with him, the natural food world was a tiny, tiny world, and everybody knew each other. He had a company called Whole Earth Foods, and he'd had the first microbiotic restaurant in London, he'd had the first organic bakery, he'd, you know, really, really, he and his brother created the veggie burger, so on. Um, And the natural food world was tiny, and so we would travel all over the world and, and see go to trade shows, see the same faces, became friends with them, very mutually supportive because everybody felt that they were actually doing something that was going to make a difference. And so if you had, if somebody came to you with a product that you couldn't sell, you might put someone else in touch with it. Craig was trying to source organic peanuts for his uh, whole earth peanut butter, best peanut butter in the world, in fact number one peanut butter in the UK um, now. Um, And... These particular peanuts from West Africa failed a test, a quality control test, and the guy said, I've got cocoa beans. And crazy, Well I can't really do anything with cocoa beans. Um, at the very least, we've got to have them made into a chocolate bar, because then it, then I can see what the quality is like. And, you know, I might be able to point you in the direction of someone who could distribute it. He was a think- thinking of a friend of was in Denmark at the time. And Craig said to this supplier, um, make it 70% cocoa. Because at the the time, the highest you could get in the UK was 55%. And he had had some 70% dark chocolate on the continent. And he felt that if he wanted something a bit darker, then probably other people felt the same way. And it was also... You know, the the natural food industry has always had a bit of an anti-sugar stance, so if you could give them something that was more cocoa and less sugar, that was probably the the way in. So he got this sample made, and I think he ate all but two squares, and I found those two squares on his desk, and obviously then I ate them because that's what you do when you find chocolate on your husband's desk. And I had this epiphany, I mean, it just was a taste explosion in my mouth. Mm Oh, my God, this is the best chocolate I've ever eaten. And he explained the story, and I, and then I started saying to him, well, what are you going to do with it? And Craig was saying, well, I can't really do anything with the whole earth brown, because it's got sugar in, and, you know, I was thinking of Lisbeth. And I just kept on and on at him. And eventually he turned around and he said, look, if you're so interested, you do it. And there was a bit of a precedent for this, because his two children... Had taken a soft drink that he'd invented and, and started a soft drink business called Gusto. So um, the uh, the idea was that if I was going to do it, I had to do the PR and the marketing, which felt comfortable because I was a journalist, just poacher turned gamekeeper. And I had to put, I had to pay the first two tons of chocolate because he didn't have that in his budget. So I had sold my flat before I moved in with Craig, and I banked the equity, and I had just about 20,000 pounds, which was the cost of two tons of chocolate. And the rest is literally confectionery history. Um, and so we had to sit in bed one Saturday night and come up with, um, a name and it's green because it's organic and black because it was by far the darkest chocolate on the market. And lots of supermarket managers told me, supermarket buyers told me that British would never eat chocolate that dark. So we confounded that, and, um, and Bob's your uncle.
0: So anybody listening to this who's um, thinking of starting a food business from scratch, what advice would you give them?
1: One of the, well, for a start nowadays, you have the massive advantage that actually you don't need £20,000 in the bank. If you've got a great concept and you can come up with a great product, you can crowdfund it. And I think that crowdfunding is a great kind of first test as to whether an idea or product has legs, because if you can persuade people on a platform like Crowdcube or Kickstarter to get behind your product, become stakeholders in your product, because if you put your own hard-earned cash into supporting this business and helping it get off to the ground, you're going to want to tell everybody about it. Um, So you can raise money that way. If you can't raise the money that way, if you can't, if your elevator pitch is not enough to convince people to make that investment, then it probably isn't a good, uh, good enough idea anyway. So that's a kind of good filter, I believe, and I think that statistically there is a um, crowd-funded businesses have a higher success rate than non-crowd-funded crowdfunded businesses. I think it's because they've gone through that filter process. Um, I think that. One of the huge advantages we had, and and has been a bit of a signature of everything I've subsequently done, was that we were first. And when you have that advantage of being first with something, from a PR point of view, you know all kinds of publicity and, and influence, etc. Really, it's a huge advantage. The second organic chocolate. I mean, I don't think anyone could even name it. Um, Never mind the third or the fourth or the fifth or whatever. So I think it's about finding something that really doesn't exist, that you're looking for, and, and you basically figure that there are other people out there like you.
0: And getting into the shops. What advice would you well, <laughs> give into the
1: shops? We, I, I can't really say that anybody could replicate what happened to us. Because we, uh, so my idea was that we would have a great business in the natural food trade because Craig had this fantastic reputation as a pioneer and an innovator, brought lots of new things. So I was pretty sure that we would have a successful business in the natural food trade and that was literally as far as my ambitions extended at that point. Um, What I did do, because I had a lot of contacts and connections and I knew how to do PR, I got chocolate into the hands of lots of people who I suppose you would call influencers now. So anyone famous I'd ever encountered, any chef I knew, anyone whose restaurant I'd visited, etc., I got it out there, I sent them chocolate, I sent them a press release about it, or, or just you know a little handwritten note or whatever. And what happened was that after about six weeks, we had sent some chocolate to supermarket buyers at that point. We'd sent it to Sainsbury's. Nothing happened. Um, but one day, I'm sitting at my desk where I had two phones because I was still a journalist. I'm still a journalist. Nothing's ever changed about that. Uh, picked up. I was on the phone to, probably to the Editor Review magazine or something. The other line went. And went, hello, Green and Blacks. It was a Sainsbury buyer. One of our directors has had your chocolate at a dinner party, and we're inviting you to submit it for the next range review. Now, as the former head of Waitrose, you know that that doesn't happen you know it and and i went home to craig that night and i said hey guess what sainsbury's called today and he went what you know no. you have to go knocking on their door for a couple of years and eventually you get your toe in and then your foot and then you get in front of a buyer and basically as far as i understand it it was lady sainsbury who'd had it at a dinner party and went home and told her husband That they really needed to have this in Sainsbury's and at the time Sainsbury's was the number one supermarket in the UK everybody looked to what Sainsbury's was doing and so when it came to talking to most of the other supermarkets we found ourselves pushing at an open door because they figured if it was in Sainsbury's it probably should be in their shop so I can't tell anybody how to make that happen except that I'm convinced that it flowed of getting my product into as many hands as possible and I think if you've got a great product, don't ever be mean with giving it away, you know make that your PR and marketing budget, get that product into people's hands because if you believe it and you think it's great, the chances are that other people will recognise that and it's there's a huge power in generosity and um, I think you know, it's much more effective in the early days of a business than, um, than, than paid for advertising when nobody recognises your brand. And what I say to people who've got a service business is that testimonials are your free chocolate. So if somebody says something nice about your product or your service, capture it, write it down, put it on your website, put it on your social media, share it however you can, because that gives people a flavour of what you do.
0: And... If you were to give yourself a score out of ten for happiness in your first job, happiness at IPC,
1: and happiness
0: <laughs> at Green and Black, what would you score? Oh yourself? gosh,
1: well probably ten, three, ten. Okay. <laughs> so the great
0: thing is that you rediscovered your workplace happiness. Oh yes. So what no, made you happy? I've been—I
1: been, been, I love my freelance career as well. I still love my freelance yeah. career. I still love the fact that I don't quite know what I might be. But what got to do you next? back to
0: that ten, Jo? What got you back excitement. to loving? But what excitement. did the excitement come from?
1: The excitement came from new territory and actually doing new things. I mean, I'd never run a customer service line before, but basically I had the customer service line on my desk. And so I was talking every day to people who were both happy, you know, usually happy about the product and wanted to know where they could get it and or could I send it to Scotland or retailers who... You know, I remember taking a call from a, a tiny little retailer in Marylebone High Street called Villandry. And it was really one of the first kind of great London delis. And Jean-Charles called up and he said, um, I want to buy your chocolate, but I can't get it from any of my wholesalers. And I said, well, that's OK, I'll drop you a couple of cases off. So I got in the car, took two cases to Marylebone High Street, double parked. Um, or part on the W L line went in and he gave me £23.76 in cash and that was amazing and I said to Chris, I went home and this is how naive I was about business, I said I love business, I said you get to you buy something for one price and you sell it for another price you get to keep the money in between of course obviously you don't Um, because that goes on all sorts of other things. But it was a really interesting business lesson I'd never transacted before in my whole life. So it was just the excitement of doing things like that, basically. And seeing journalists pick up on it and and chefs, within about six months, any magazine that you picked up where there was a recipe for anything chocolatey said 70% dark chocolate is the benchmark of quality. And we were the only 70% chocolate in town. So it was amazing.
0: So then skip us on from your journey from there. You're amazing launch. You, you built the most amazing brand. You sold your brand. Yep. So just, just take us through your, your journey from... Well, I
1: think, I think it's important to rewind a bit because obviously one of the things that happened was after three years, we launched Meyer Gold, which was the first fair trademark product in the UK. And what I realised with that is that you could actually not just change the lives of people around you, but actually change the lives of whole communities through, um, through business. And my, my mentor, who I'm, I'm sure will come on to as the amazing Anita Roddick, and, and kind of, you know, was really one of the pioneers of, of, of doing that. And that tapped into something that was very, uh, a very strong thing in my childhood, which was that I always... And I say, where did your social conscience come from? And I say, Blue Peter. You know, it was a program that that really made you think about other people and the impact that you could have on their lives. And that kind of stayed with me. So this idea that when we got the opportunity to kind of work directly with these, these farming communities in the developing world and transform their lives, that was just unbelievably rewarding. And it's still my you know, proudest achievement that we've not only done that, but by being first with that, you know, it's had a ripple effect through, through food and, and beverage and clothing and beauty and all of those things, getting people to think about how their product, if you like, can help make other people happier, not just them.
0: And, and so on uh, mentoring, um, I always ask, the people I interviewed if they had a mentor, um, and you mentioned that Anita Roddick was your mentor. So, how did that come about?
1: I went to interview Anita, um, and we were going to Mexico together. I was going to write about her aloe project in Mexico, her fair trade aloe project, and um, we met at the airport. And I'd been terrified of her before I met her. I thought, she, you know, she she was. I thought she was probably quite scary. In fact, she was not a scary person. She was a complete pussycat. And after she'd lost her passport four times between the check-in desk and me, um getting on the plane, uh, I was no longer scared of her. And by the time we got to Mexico, we were really good friends. And, but at that time, I was just a journalist. So it was probably 1988. And uh, it was later when I launched Green and Blacks that she really, we became friends, but she really stepped into a role of helping um so not just kind of keeping my passion blazing when things got very difficult and maintaining my sense of humor, but um, also introducing me to a particular network in the States of uh, social, vent- it was called Social Venture Network, I think it's still going, uh, for social entrepreneurs. And so we'd get together in, in these different places um, and kind of, you know, it's like a support group because people still thought we were mad. And, um, and it was people like, you know, Anita and Gordon and Ben and Jerry of the ice cream and, and people who were just amazing pioneers. Um, and we were lone voices in the wilderness when we weren't there. But when we got together, it was just a very supportive environment and it fired you up to go back and keep going when lots of people told you you, you were bonkers and you couldn't possibly change the world through business.
0: What was the, the best advice she ever gave you on each
1: product? I suppose I, I, I really learned from her about authenticity, about the fact that, you know, just be yourself. Warts and all, F words and all, you know. She was amazing like that. And I, and I talked to people. I mean, I don't feel I'd been massively play-acting. But I've had, you know, when I first became an editor, I definitely had imposter syndrome for the first month. I, I was terrified of being found out. Um and I just say to people, what you know, just be who you are and then you can concentrate on doing your job and not worrying about how other people are going to see you. You know, it's really important to lay that aside.
0: And so post chocolate. Tell us tell us about post- Well post-chocolate. Huge, I mean I'm still I'm still involved with
1: with Green Blacks. I'm I'm a chocolate ambassador. Um and I'm still hugely proud of, of what we do. Um and but it enabled me, selling the business, enabled me... Um, I'm not the sort of person to stare at sunsets. It's just not going to happen. An occasional sunset on holiday is lovely. But, you know, I don't play golf. never going to play golf. I, I need to be excited and engaged. And so the first thing we did was open a bakery or buy, our existing, uh, buy an existing bakery in our hometown of Hastings and take it organic put in a one-stop natural and organic food store really helped to change the retail landscape there. There was no way you could get decent food. And, and again, I just thought, if I'm carrying Whole Foods bags back from London, long before Ricardo, um then lots of other people must, feel, must be doing the same thing. I see them on the train, you know. So we opened somewhere that was like a kind of mini Whole Foods. Um, and everything, actually everything organic. Um, I had great fun uh, experimenting, particularly, as I remember, with the organic donuts. (laughs) (laughs) The trials for organic donuts It seemed like every time I ate one, Craig walked in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also opened a well-being centre in our town called the Wellington Centre, which again was something... There was nowhere where I could go and have an iso-good glass. There was nowhere I could have a lovely massage without some of the dog barking in the kitchen. and you know having a massage at home for most people is you know not terribly relaxing because you hear the phone and you hear the kids and you hear everything going on and we found a lovely old rundown council building beautiful regency building and turned it into a beautiful well-being center because that is something i have always always believed in um, is the importance of taking care of yourself and i always say to people that you know they have a responsibility if they have a team they have to look after themselves because if you're down and out then 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 you know everyone who depends on you is also the same.
0: And so you continue to pioneer you continue to challenge uh, you do lots of work with fair trade um, when you look forward, what what do you want to achieve over the next 10 years i'm
1: really bad at looking forward i'm really really bad at looking forward because i've always had such exciting things happen to me i've always had such great opportunities that came completely from left field things that i never expected to do i've never planned anything I i haven't applied for a job since i was 19 years old But I've had opportunities and I've grasped them. And so I slightly trust to the universe that that's the way that my life is going to be. And that, you know, planning is a bit alien to me really. Um, So I I can't tell you, I can't tell you. I do now give away an idea almost every day because I'm always having ideas. And I no longer feel that I I have to do them. Um, I mean, I founded something, s- launched five years ago, called the Perfume Society, all about helping people to improve their sense of smell through fragrance. It didn't exist. You know, there was nothing like it in the world before we launched it. And it, that was just something that came... It, we're sitting at a boardroom table. It was, it was at a boardroom table like this where I was doing an event for readers of a magazine putting fragrances out and I just said to my editor, it's so weird that there's no Perfume Society. And I, you know, googled it and the fourth thing that came up was Stake Appreciation Society. (laughs) So, you know, there are still gaps in the market. There's still things you can find. And so now when I have those ideas um, I I tend to give them away.
0: <laughs> so what we're going to do now, uh, Jo, is the uh, Workplace Happiness Survey. So you're to engage in words. Um, and on the first screen, what we ask you is to uh, to say where you uh, work. So what do you work uh, to put down? I'll put the Perfume Society. Very good.
1: I'll put the Perfume Society and Beauty Bible. Because Beauty Bible is a website that I have run with my co-author Sarah Stacey, book co-author Sarah Stacey, since about 2001, and basically both the teams um, work together. So, um, do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? So, I would answer eight to that. Okay. Are you happy with your working hours? Well, I'm in control of my working hours, so I don't think... That this is as appropriate to me um, as it would be to some people but I'm a great believer in working smarter not working longer hours and so my team work nine to five and I don't make them do you know and it and and they're very effective during that time rather Um, than staying late or you know taking their work home with them
0: and how many hours a week would
1: you do? Uh, I would probably do about 60 hours a week but that's because I work for myself. Mm. I'm going to give myself nine. Okay, eight. No, no. Nine. nine. Okay. Okay. I think probably fingers. Do you feel recognised when you do something well? Yes, I do.
0: Ten. So who recognises you? Well,
1: because mm, my main source of income is as a public speaker, going out to audiences, talking to them about the entrepreneurial journey, talking, you know, in, inspiring people, hopefully. Um, sharing up my journey and the things that I have learned along the way and I get actual applause <laughs> which when it comes to kind of recognition there's nothing better and I get lovely comments on my Instagram or my Twitter or... You know comments from from clients who book me and so I am in this amazing position where I get lots of lovely feedback so
0: and the examples you gave earlier in your very first job you were talking about the, the two guys yeah uh, who ran the company taking you out racing and giving you gifts and whatever yeah and then you talked about the absence of that when you moved yes. to IPC. <laughs> so um, clearly you're now at a point where you once again feel properly recognised for what you do. Yes, I do. I
1: do. But I mean, to be honest, that's been the case for for, for most of the time since I was at IPC. So the question, do you have enough information to do your job well? Um, I know where to find information. And I think that that is something that actually should be better taught in schools. It's a real life skill. I know, because I was a journalist, I know where to get information, how to find things out. It it never ceases to amaze me that people say, how do I do X, Y? And I go, have you done a Google search? And generally, they haven't done a Google search. You can do anything from make a pancake to build a nuclear bomb. With a tutorial on YouTube, so, so you know, I know I have enough information to do my job well, um, but it's you know, I, I think empowering people to find stuff out for themselves without constantly having to be milk fed, is a is, is quite important. So I'm probably ate Do you feel information was openly shared with you at work? Again, I don't really feel that this is particularly relevant with me. Um, I certainly try and share it with my with my teams. So i I'd probably say... And what, ab- and what
0: about the people that you work with in the Perfume Society and the Beauty Bible? Do you think they tell you everything that you'd like to know about what's going on? Do they protect you? In the you? office? Yeah.
1: Um, I don't think they protect me. I think sometimes there, there has been a case, one or two, where they protect each other. Mm. Um, but one particular person who they were protecting... Um, who was in a kind of temporal... Um, I think they felt very sorry for her and uh, didn't really want me to know how they were propping her up. Mm. Um, but in general, we're very... I think we're quite open. I think we're quite open. Okay. Um So let's say... Let's say seven. Uh, do you have the resources you need to do your job well? I do because I provide them to myself. Um, do my, my team have... Um, good computers, mobile phones, more comfortable chairs if they need them. Um, and I think that uh, through running all my businesses um, in the cloud where all information is stored, basically, they're, 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 they, they can pretty much, we can pretty much access. I mean, that's a huge advantage. Literally, I can call up anything at the touch of a keystroke, everything's up there. I always point to the ceiling because I still do slightly feel it's up there. Um, but, you know, gosh, that's a massive advantage. So, I mean, I'd say seven. Do you want to go two? Do I feel empowered to make decisions? That's a ten. <laughs> do you feel trusted to make decisions? Yes, again, I have two business partners and I work with Craig for many, many years and we still have, you know, the, the well-being centre together. I think that when you... I think a really important aspect of working alongside people is to try to get into their head to understand them and to know what they would do in any given situation. And also to feel empowered to take that decision without necessarily having to defer to them. I mean, I do work with some very large companies where people are afraid of their shadows. And they don't want to be that person whose head is stuck up with barbed patch. And as a result, those companies, I mean, I think they're doomed. I think unless they've got people who are prepared to stand up and, and say, no, what we need to be doing is this, and, and have you thought of this, rather than kind of cowering under their divider. Um, so, I mean, yes, I certainly feel empowered to... to to, to make decisions, do I feel my views are heard at work? Yes, um, and I would like to think that that you know the people who work for me also are allowed to say what they think.
0: So what are you giving yourself on that? I'm giving eight.
1: Okay. Does the organisation care for your well being? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I run the organisation. I care for their well being. So. Um, that thing about the chairs, for a start. You know, if someone's got an uncomfortable chair, is having a back issue or anything like that. I mean, I had somebody who was was doing too much um, uh, inputting of, of data on something, and we got her a course of Pilates. Um, same girl got a, a course of acupuncture for Christmas because I knew, you know, she she was she had a tough time personally last year. And I 1000% believe in uh, giving people, you know, looking after them at work. They all actually cook in my kitchen, um, which is the other thing that I let them do, because they all come into my house. Um, And they all cook amazingly healthily. I mean, they all, it's, it's
0: wonderful. And do you look after yourself?
1: Yes. It's a, it's a real priority, as I said. I think if you, if you don't look after yourself and you're running on empty, then you're not doing anybody any favours. And it would be very hypocritical of me as someone who owns a wellbeing centre not to look after myself. Um, so yes, I would say that's a 10. I rarely feel anxious at work. No, I'm a businesswoman. I feel anxious all the time um, <laughs> because there's so much that can go wrong. Um, But I don't let it get to me. However, whenever you run a business, you're always just waiting for the next, you know, in our case with Green and Black's Hurricane to hit or with the Perfume Society um, consignment to be stuck at customs or or whatever. So there's a sort of underlying anxiety. And how do you manage that, Jim? Uh, 10 minutes of calm.com meditation every single morning before I start work. That really helps.
0: And that you've learned to live with a kind of high base level of anxiety. Yeah, but that's my choice.
1: I I think think, uh, what would be really wrong is if somebody who worked for me had a score of two. Hmm. Okay. that
0: would be I'd be really
1: and, and Craig, not very proud of
0: partner, that what would he be think? he's so
1: laid back Mark you know Craig he'd probably be a 10
0: <laughs> never anxious for one moment okay. very
1: zen are you happy with your working environment that was another lesson that I learned from Carlton Publishing yes it's 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 lovely we have flowers we have nice mugs we have um, they've got really lovely vintage floral covers for their computers and um it's it's not a shithole basically it's not full of cardboard boxes that people can trip over it's i think it's really important to have a nice office because i mean not an expensive nice office thank you ikea but just somewhere that is you know pleasant to be because you're going to spend more of your working hours then more of your day there probably than you are at home So I would say that was a nine. Do I feel happy at work? Yes, I do. I feel, um, I would say that was an eight. Do I feel I'm doing something worthwhile? Yes, again, I'm very blessed. But again, I'm in control of my destiny. And so I I think this is a great quiz uh, for, you know, survey. For uh, people, I mean, I should run, get my team to do it, really. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see. But fingers crossed. Something worthwhile, yes. Do I feel proud to work at my organisation? Totally, 100%. So that would be a 10. How likely am I to recommend my friends and family to work at my organisation? Well, actually, um, interestingly... Uh, the team that I have when we have a vacancy generally are trying to get their friends to come and work there so I think that that says a lot about how they feel and so yes they're always recommending their friends and I think that, that probably we could put a 10 there do I feel I'm treated with respect yes I mean I think you know weirdly that's a given for me Um, And it's a given that I would treat them with respect. It's like I never... If I send an email at night, I don't expect anybody to reply to it. In fact, I usually put, please don't reply to this till the morning. If I... I would never... I don't call people outside office hours unless it's a bloody emergency and they've gone home with the keys and I'm locked out. Or something really serious has happened that, you know, can't wait till the next day. But I would never... Otherwise, I, I have great respect for their private time. So I think, I think probably a nine or a 10, definitely there. Do I enjoy my job? Yes, I do. Um, otherwise, I really wouldn't do it. Um,
0: How many people do you think do do a job they don't enjoy, in your experience? A
1: lot a lot and they're waiting for their gold watch and what I would say to them is find something that you love and that you're passionate about because this ain't a rehearsal and you don't want to wait till you're 65 and for your life to begin then, you need to find your purpose and find your passion and want to spring out of bed every day
0: and do you think that, that um, younger people in the workplace say millennials, people on the age of 30 are more inclined to think about their happiness and enjoying work rather than Struggling on, or, or do you think it applies to all groups that you've worked with?
1: I think it applies to everyone. I mean, I think it's a, it's a fact that people are less loyal than they generally were. They stay in jobs for a shorter period of time. Um, but then, you know, you could just end up kissing lots of frogs um, to find your prince. And actually, I think it takes a while to separate, really, really find your feet in a job. I think it takes a year before you really feel like you're, you know, what exactly what you're doing. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoy my job. Do I feel I have a good relationship with line, like my line manager? I don't have, i never had a line manager, really. Well, you have, but well, you
0: didn't like him.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I suppose I did. Um, so, so now I am so the you've, line got, manager. you've
0: got your co-founders? And yes,
1: uh, yes, I do. I, I, you know, again, we've worked together for years and years and years. We know each other extremely well, um, and I would, I would say that we have a, a good relationship. With, with both of them. I'd probably give it an eight, which I think is quite high. Do I feel I'm being developed? I develop myself, but I also do try to develop the people that work for me, you know, sending them on courses or, or just throwing them a little bit in the deep end with things so that they're, they're, they're stretched. Um, so.
0: And do you think it's important to keep self-developing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I mean, i go on... I mean, it could be something like a cookery course in something that you didn't know how to cook, or... I spend a lot of time... If I'm in London, if I've got time to go, I go to a gallery where I, I, you know, take in some kind of cultural experience, because that feeds me. That feeds my brain, it feeds my soul. So I would say, yes, I feel like I'm being developed. What three changes would improve, improve my workplace happiness? A lift! To the top floor of my house. You can do so that. <laughs> so
0: Not going to happen. It's, it's a but listed building. If, if you write down the things that you want <laughs> to see improved, it's amazing how if you put your mind to it, you can improve them.
1: Yes. Um, I, but you, heritage current, might have something to say that. Yeah. Um, second change, um, I suppose I'd like, in each of my organisations, I would like the budget for one more person. So extra help. We have just appointed half a person. Someone who's job sharing So third change. Oh, so hard. Yeah, I, I mean
0: Feel less anxious. Feel less anxious, yes. Which that must would be a, probably that must be be. A
1: be yeah, it is, but it's everybody I know who's in business has has those anxieties, except possibly my husband. <laughs> yes. Um but you know, if you don't want to feel like that, go and work for someone else. Yeah. yeah. You know, so so if you want to be able to close the door on your work at six o'clock and not think about it till next day, don't start your own business. So, ask some questions about me.
0: So we do this, Joe, we ask people who feel it's to um for Thank you. Continue
1: to results. Oh my god. So I'm eighty five percent happy. Brilliant. That's just literally probably where I would have put myself.
0: And how does that compare to people that look like you globally?
1: Pretty good, I'd say. Sixty three percent for industry and sixty five percent globally. But yeah, that's that's I'm I'm impressed.
0: And then we break that down by six categories so we have reward recognition information sharing we have responsibility or empowerment well-being sense of pride and uh, job satisfaction and you score green on all of them Um, oh so there
1: are ambers and reds so there's ambers (laughs) and
0: reds and if you're amber and red what we do is we try and help you improve in that area so if you click on there What it does is it tells you the questions that make up that category and it tells you what your percentage is. And if you had scored poorly, we would show you the video or we'd uh, uh, suggest you might listen to a podcast uh, to give you some advice about how you might improve. And working with businesses, we do the same. We do it for businesses and we help businesses manage this for their whole team. One of the things
1: that I learned when I was running the really was um, I had a couple of single mums work for me and I was incredibly flexible with them in terms of allowing them to do their work when they wanted to do it and you know if the kids were sick or, or they had a carol concert to go to or you know, school holidays or whatever and nobody ever let me down nobody ever let me down and I've had I think ever since then I've had quite a light touch, I don't micromanage people and I think that's again why people probably like to work for me because I'm not breathing down the neck, I set tasks, I set deadlines and really they're mostly they, they're, they're delivered on but uh, the
0: lesson and is I think if you trust people yeah. they pay you back with totally. responsibility, totally, absolutely and it's why we asked that question about your working hours, because we, we break this down by all those demographics, and there is, there is a group for whom that flexibility work is very, very important. Yes. And there's another group um, who are working too many hours. Yes. And again, identifying how that can be improved in the way you suggested. Absolutely. Well,
1: I, but I think it goes much deeper than that, because I, I honestly feel that when, when you talk about the glass ceiling for women, one of the reasons that women are not... Taking, they're not seen in these in these boardroom roles and these and these senior management roles in in banks and accounting firms and etc. is because they are not working flexibly.
0: And my last question for you is: if you could suggest or recommend anybody to do the workplace happiness survey, who would it be and why?
1: S- some so somebody to come on your show?
0: No. Just, just anybody be. You, well I dream. think everybody should do it.
1: I think everybody yeah. should do, no, literally that that you need a bit of time to be self reflective. And things like this make you think about what matters to you. And so, you know, why wouldn't why wouldn't anybody do it? Um, because as I say, it's not a rehearsal. And if you're coming up in amber and red, probably that's the spur you need to get out of your fur line rut, if indeed that's what it is, and do
0: something else. Okay. Well, with that recommendation that everybody please have the <laughs> survey. can I thank you very much for your time. Uh, you've had the most inspirational career, and I know the people listening today will have drawn a huge amount from your words of wisdom. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening and again if you want to take control of your workplace happiness go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.